We continue our gospel today in uh, the Beatitudes, which cover two chapters. So it would take a very long time to cover the entire Sermon on the Mount. But I am um, changing just a little bit. I know Terry has the entire passage up there, and I think uh, you probably need to go home and read it. I'm going to move through it a little bit differently than I had initially told you, Terry. I'm sorry. Um, we all have to beg forgiveness sometimes, don't we? Listen to the word. Beginning in the 17th chapter. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of the letter will pass. We need to hear that again. I know we read it last week, but I wanted to read that again until we moved into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in 21. You have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to hell, a fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first, go, go, first be reconciled to your brother and sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to be judged, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And I wanted to end with 33, because we had rather a long section today. Again, have you heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not bear false witness, but carry out the vows you made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, or it is, or, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word, let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more, this comes from the evil one. This is the word of God for the people of God. There was a professor that I read about that taught at Boston College, Peter Kreft. And he had this story from his childhood that he wrote in a paper that he published. And he says, 
I remember this day exactly when I was when I was when it hit me riding north on Halladon <coughs> Avenue between Sixth and Seventh Streets in Patterson, New Jersey, after Sunday morning church with my parents. Isn't it remarkable how we remember exactly where we were when we when great events happen that change our lives. I had learned some things about God and Jesus, about heaven, and about good and evil in church and Sunday school. Like most children at that age, I was a bit confused and overwhelmed by it all, especially by this great thing called God expected of me. I felt a little insecure I guess about not knowing and a little guilty about not doing everything that I was supposed to be doing. Then all of a sudden the sun shone through the fog. I saw the one thing necessary that made sense in order of everything else. I checked out my insight, he goes on to say, with my father, my most reliable authority. He was, after all, an elder in the church, and much more important, a good and wise man. Dad, everything they teach us in church and Sunday school, all of that stuff we're supposed to learn from the Bible, all of it comes down to one thing, doesn't it? I mean, if we only remember one of the most important things of all time, then all the other things will be okay, right? His father replied somewhat skeptically, what one thing? There are a lot of things that are important. I mean, I should just always ask God what he wants me to do and then do it. That's all there is, isn't it? Peter's father replied, You know, I think you're right, son. That's it. Peter goes on to write that I had perceived via God's grace, not by my own wit. Surely that since God is love, we must therefore love God and love whatever God loves. I now knew that if we turn to the divine conductor, and follow his wise and loving baton, which is his will, his word, then the music of our life will be a symphony. Peter, as a young child, had really grasped the central message of what Jesus really is talking about in this long passage of our scripture today. Jesus interprets for us the law and makes it just a little bit more difficult. People love rules. We love them because they give us a way to operate. Here are the rules. It's black and white. We can stay within those boundaries. I don't think rules are quite that simple. We tend to vary outside of them, interpreting 
the way they are for us, maybe to fit us. Maybe we have a hard time with them. Maybe we follow them too strictly and say, well, that's not the law, so I can't do anything. And that is very reflective in a story from Portland, Oregon, where a 61-year-old man, this is a true story, died in a parking garage just 100 feet from the entrance of the hospital, emergency room. Portland police said no one from the staff of the hospital would respond to the calls for help from the officers as they were there struggling to revive this man in his car as he was having a heart attack. Not one of the hospital staff came to help because they had a rule. Someone first had to call 911 before they could respond. The hospital spokesman, Judy Leach, went on to say the emergency room staff was told it was a car crash and they were following the proper protocol by instructing police to summon an ambulance crew. Leach said Friday, that's what the article said, there are protocols in place to ensure the right thing is done for the right patient at the right time. <clears throat> they had a rule, and no one bothered to use common sense. They followed the rule exactly. Exactly. And someone died. It sounds so counterproductive to us, doesn't it? It did to me. I just couldn't figure all that out because rules are simple. By using our brains to think in terms of ethics, values, and morality, they are not simple. And Jesus showed what the real intent of the law was. The law was not to affect so much our actions as they were there to affect our heart, our attitudes, and our intentions, our motives. What our heart is. Jesus said that it was not enough to have murdered anyone. If you start in the very first passage that we read today from Matthew. It wasn't so much about murder someone. You must not even hate anyone. You must not be angry with anyone. You must not speak ill of anyone. Because when you do that, you are murdering their soul. Commentary I read about that said it is just as if you had committed murder. I had. We really just take that commandment on face value, don't we? We think it's physically attacking someone, taking their life. But when you go to that soul of that person, speak ugly of them, break their soul, break their heart, you are murdering them. 
It seems to me that we sometimes think of Jesus coming and making this whole relationship with God thing easier. That was his intention. When in actuality, he may have just made it more difficult for us. Because he says, if you go down a little bit further in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yes, there is grace and there is forgiveness. But we cannot brush aside the fact that Jesus is calling us to take on the character of God. That's so much more than just the surface of these commandments. We are to strive to live at a higher plane. We are to strive to reach perfection. What John Wesley says, we are to strive to reach perfection. We may not get there, but we are to live out our life as we are seeking to live in perfection, to be more like God, our Father, our Creator. We are to forgive even those who do not deserve it, because that is what God is like. We are to seek to live like God, not only in our actions, but in our reactions, our attitudes, our thinking, our heart. You know, I have a good friend, and, and I did do this growing up, so I still do it um, many times when I am praying a prayer something I am praying. You may see me. All Lutherans grow up crossing. We did that. We crossed ourselves. And I have a very dear friend of mine, Mark McDonald, that lives out in Houston who is an Episcopal priest. And sometimes when I'm out that way visiting my brother, I will go to church to listen to Mark. And they cross themselves a lot during their service, which is fine. I don't have a problem with it, but I didn't really always understand it. So I was having lunch with him and Joni, and I asked him about it. And he said that uh, when it came time to read the gospel lesson, the words of Jesus, they did things just a little bit differently. He said we cross our foreheads, our lips, and our hearts. He said it is in effect that the scriptures, when they are read, we are saying, Christ, be in my mind. Christ, be in the words that I speak. Christ, be in my heart, in my living. Write your law on my heart. I just thought that was a beautiful, I, I never knew why they did those things. And you don't know, I guess, unless you ask, right? So I asked him, and I thought, that is a beautiful way to look at that. I never knew. I just, but I thought, keep it in my mind. Keep it in the words that I speak. And keep it in my heart. 
That is because there is something that we are called to do. There is something that's supposed to take place in our lives. And it's called transformation. And it can only come from one thing. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can do that for us and in us. It is God who brings about the change of heart and transformation which is necessary to live in the way of Jesus. Paul speaks about this in Romans 12, 1 through 2, when he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve that God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, when we send our children to school, you know where they start, like in preschool, now in preschool, and then in kindergarten, and on into first grade, they begin to learn the alphabet. And we're always so proud. I still have every book my children brought home from kindergarten when they were learning to make the A. I keep asking them if they want them. They keep saying no. <laughs> Mom, why do you have them? But they're important to me, I guess. I don't know. But that's where they begin. They don't begin reading War and Peace, or some really high-level book on philosophy. They learn those concepts later. They enter the first grade learning to count <coughs> when they add their numbers. They don't take calculus or physics first. That comes later. So we have to appreciate where we are today. The human race did not start out with a full understanding of what God expected of them. They lost that somewhere in Genesis. They didn't understand it. They had trouble grasping it. The people of Jesus' day did not enjoy the benefits of living 2,000 years after Christ, like we did. They didn't know and see and understand everything that was right for them. So they had trouble wrapping their minds around it. And since the beginning of time, the human race has been trying to grow and mature in their understanding of God because he is so much more than we can ever grasp. You know, we have all this technology. We have uh, advanced socially. Um, even American democracy, when you look back in history and the great history of the world is relatively young, we tend to even take that for granted. We have a hard time imagining it before our lifetime because we've always lived 
in the democracy of the United States. So it's also difficult to understand what it must have been like before there was a Jesus. Before that. It's impossible to understand what it must have been like in a world before there were the Ten Commandments. We know from the accounts of the Bible that it was a lot of crudeness and cruelty. Um, we were doing things against God. So God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and it was something drastic and new for the people of God to hear and be delivered the Ten Commandments. When he came down from the mountain, he had just brought them out of slavery in Egypt. So when Moses came down from that mountain, they were still full of rebellion. It didn't take long, did it? The history of Israel is marked by these failures. They were hard for them to live under. 1,500 years after Moses was given the Ten Commandments, Jesus stood and gave his people the Sermon on the Mount. When Moses brought the Ten Commandments down, the people really weren't ready to hear it. They weren't ready to take that next step of living in the covenant with God. Paul said that the law was sort of like a tutor, these Ten Commandments. He says it in Galatians 3, 19 through 24. But before faith came, we kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But, not by, but now the faith has come. We are no longer under the tutor. By the time finally came that mankind was ready to take that next step with God. The Bible says from Galatians 4, But when the time had finally come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of the Son. God did not give the Beatitudes to Moses. He gave him ten simple rules. Ten simple rules that proved to be exceedingly difficult for God's people to obey. And quite frankly, we still have trouble with those ten simple commandments. But Jesus did not just repeat the Ten Commandments on the Sermon of the Mount. He went beyond that. Because 1,500 years later, we were ready to move on. Jesus knew of a new way of obedience to God. And it proved a mystery to the people of his day. 
And just like the commandments, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, proves to still be somewhat of a mystery for God's people today. We still struggle with those words today. We still struggle with understanding and following Jesus. We let our minds wander. We let our will wander. We still want to treat each other ugly. We still want to call each other names. We still don't want to just turn the other cheek. We still don't want to forgive our enemies. So how far have we really come? For us today, we have the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We know that. When Jesus was speaking to the people on the Sermon on the Mount, they were still just trying to grasp it. Why is it still so hard for us today? That was the challenge he put before them. It's a challenge he puts before us today as we sit here in these pews. He is asking us if we are going to live in his gospel, if we are going to uphold the truth of the gospel as Christians, when we say yes to him, I say it every Sunday in some way, either at the offertory prayer or the prayers to people, Jesus, let us boldly say yes to you today. He says to us, stand on that. Live that. And let your yes mean yes. Amen and amen. amen.